Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. Morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be generally concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has distressed because he has heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should, be, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at him seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Through it, we know you and we know your great promises, God. We know the amazing and gracious things that you have done since the beginning, and we know what is pleasing to you, Lord. And as we turn our eyes and our attention to your word now, Father, we ask, God, that you would remove distraction from our minds. God, that we would give this time <clears throat> entirely to you, Lord, as if you are speaking to us through these words because you are. And so, Father, help us to be hearers and doers of your word. We thank you that your word tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so, we lay hold of your love this morning. We thank you that you're faithful and steadfast. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so James chapter 2. So, of course, as you guys know, we got to get our minds in the right spot. I won't just parachute us in here. I'm also not going to review the whole book or the whole council of Scripture as an introduction, so don't worry. Um, but as good Bible students, as I assume all of you are or desire to be, we cannot afford to just willy-nilly gloss over the text of Scripture. That's something that I know I've been guilty of many times, and perhaps some of you are as well, thinking that we know what it means because we've heard it before. I know Pastor Rob has spoken on this lately. You know, we've, we've heard a lot of these things so many times that we go, yeah, I get that, got that. 
move on, I'm good. Um, I'll confess to you guys that the more that I learn, the more I realize I once thought that I knew. Does that make sense? The more that you, <laughs> the, the more that you know, the more you realize that you don't know. That's a, a better way of putting it. Um, we've got to lay our, our pride aside and let the scripture speak for itself. And as Pastor Rob has pointed out with James already, some have, by a lack of carefully considering this book, have reduced the letter to little more than a book of disjointed proverbs. It's just a bunch of do this, do that. Here's some principles for Christian living. It's much more than that. And if we want to seek to know God through his word, we have got to give our minds to this task, right? We're to worship God with all of our being, and that includes our minds. So we have to actually think when we come to the scripture. It's not a magic book. You can't just open it and read it, and, and everything is just going to make perfect sense. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. We have to apply ourselves to this. Reading, listening, right? He talked about this last week. Two of these, one of these. We've got to use our ears. Meditating, considering. There's a lot of effort that has to go into properly understanding the Word of God. And some of the worst errors in theology and in living come from lazy Bible study, lazy reading, where we're not really engaging with the text, we're just reading it to say that we read it. And then we walk away and go, no idea what I read, no idea what it means, but at least I read it. Now, that's better than nothing, I will give you that. But that's not where we want to end. We want to we go beyond that. We have to put in the effort of understanding. That is where we will truly come into the depth of understanding of God's word and really be blessed by what we're reading and not always be kind of fumbling around. And when we come to books like James or 1 John, these are the kind of books that can kind of freak us out or confuse us if we're not understanding them rightly. And so we have to be diligent to let the author speak for himself, to let James set the tone and not just see the things that we've heard or not just hear the things that we've heard Every time that we come to the scripture, we come as learners, not as people that know everything, amen? And so James chapter 2 is one of the most discussed and questioned and even debated chapters in all the New Testament. If you've been around a while, you've heard probably a few different uh, takes on this chapter. And so before we get into it, I just want to use a little bit of glass cleaner on our spectacles here, okay? We're going to get the grease off a little bit so that we can see the heart of this pastor as he writes to the church. So let's, we're not going to do a full recap of chapter one, but just follow with me through some key verses, if you would turn back. Chapter one, verse two, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So number one, we know he's writing to Christians who are facing trials. They've been dispersed, they've been persecuted, there's obviously some division going on in the church and what does a good pastor do in such a situation? He gives them hope. He gives them hope. He says, everything you're going through is a gift from God for your good and for your faith and for your strength and for your maturity. And then turn over to chapter 1, verse 12. He said, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. When you persevere through all this, when you come out the other side, you will receive the crown of life from God. It is promised to those who love him. If you love God, you have been promised eternal life. And so he reorients their hope to the future, right? Because in the moment, what's going on? Trials, difficulty. Our hope has always got to be deferred to the future. Our hope is not here. Our hope is not now. And so James points them ahead to the glory that awaits the gift of God, who, by the way, verse 16, put your eyes there, verse 16 is the giver of every, oh, that's 17, giver of every good and perfect gift, especially the gift of eternal life. And he's, we're told he never changes. God never changes. He is for you and he is working in you, and he has not changed his stance or his disposition. 
We are the ones, remember from last week, that waver and are unstable and double-minded and half-hearted and all that stuff. God's character does not change and his promises do not change and they are not dependent on you. Ah, isn't that freeing? God is unchanging, his promises are unchanging, and your wishy-washy wavering, my wishy-washy wavering, does not change God or his promises. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, meaning he made us alive because it pleased him. It was nothing in us, nothing good or desirable or righteous. It was in him who first loved us, as John puts it. He first loved us. God is for us. He's working in trials. He's promised us eternal life. He never changes. His promises never change. And it was his own doing that you are alive in Christ Jesus. He loved you so that you would love him. So does that sound like James is setting up security or doubt? Security. He's speaking to beloved brothers. And now he's going to correct their behavior, the behavior that's going on in the church based on this. For those who are in Christ, the things that were going on in the church were not fitting. They were not right. They were not loving and they were not done in faith. And in chapter 3, verse 10, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. He says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. These things ought not be so. That's a great way to summarize a lot of what James was addressing here in the early church. These things should not be for those who have been called by Christ. If you are in Christ this is not right for you. Many, I think, have really read a threatening tone into the book of James as if he's saying, these things you're doing prove that you're not legit Christians. But that's not the case at all. It's actually the opposite. He's saying, because you are Christians, these things are not fitting for you. He's not saying, look at all these things you're doing. You guys aren't saved. He's saying, no, God saved you. Why are you then doing these things that you are doing? You've forgotten who you are. James understood the gospel. He knew full well that salvation is the free gift of God to be received by faith in Jesus Christ alone. He knew what had been accomplished at the cross, and so he's stirring up his readers to live consistently with the call of Christ, to walk worthy of the calling. Now, does he use stern language at times? Yes, Absolutely. Pastor James is not playing around with these guys, all right? He gives it to them straight, but he does that in love. James is totally consistent with the rest of the New Testament writers, New Testament pastors, Paul, Peter, John, in reminding his audience to live in light of what they are, to live in light of who they are in Christ, in light of who God has declared them to be, having brought them to life of his own will, forgiven, righteous, loved. He's calling them to live consistently with what has been done for them. Does that make sense? Seven head nods. As Paul would put it in Philippians, to work out their salvation, or you could say to walk it out, to walk it out. Not to earn it or secure it or to keep it or even necessarily to prove it, but to live like they truly believe it. Because when we live like we believe God's word, it is good for the people around us. It is good for your fellow believer when you live in a way that demonstrates that you actually believe in what Christ has done for you. So James is very concerned with Christians loving each other within the church, especially under trial and difficulty when unity and brotherly and sisterly love are most needed. When the church is under trial, we need to guard unity and love all the more. And so, we turn our eyes to chapter 2 where James is going to address the problem of partiality. And so he opens in this way. He says, my brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So notice again, how does he open the chapter? My brothers, this is very helpful for us. We know that we're hearing the words of a loving pastor. This is loving correction that he is giving to his people, not condemnation. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room, myself included, must be able to receive correction. Must be able to receive correction and not point fingers and blame shift and make excuses like Adam did in the garden, right? That's our favorite joke around here. It was the woman, right? She gave me the fruit, and then she goes, it was the snake, right? Nobody gets to do that. Correction is for you. Don't accuse people of condemning you when they come to correct you in love. That is boldness and true love if someone comes to you with godly correction. You should rejoice that you have a friend that loves you enough to come to you and do that for you. Correction done in love is a wonderful and good and necessary thing. And if you are unwilling to be corrected, you will never grow into maturity. Facts. If you cannot be corrected, you will never be mature. And the church ultimately will be hindered in our love and unity. So we have to be able to take correction. So James is going to give it. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. So James is telling them that partiality and the glory of Jesus Christ have no fellowship with one another. If we are holding to faith in him, we must do away with partiality. We need to let go of that and cling to Christ because the two are incompatible We cannot hold on to both. And here's why. Let's read verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit here at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. And so here is an illustration for us. This illustration depicts two guests that come into the assembly. One is a baller and the other is a bum. Okay? That's as, as plainly as we can put it. It doesn't say anything else about them. It doesn't say anything about their heart or their character or anything. Just that they come in as guests. One man decked out in the finest attire, or whatever that means to you, Nowadays, that could be who knows what. And a man with tattered clothes and a shaggy appearance also comes in. And the warning is not to show special preference for the rich man because you see his status and his wealth, giving him the fine place to sit, right? The chair of honor, front front row, front and center. Why don't you come sit here in this comfy chair? While neglecting or despising the poor man, having him stand in the back hallway over there behind Russ, the hallway of shame, or maybe sit on the floor behind the sound booth where nobody can see him. The idea is that this ought not be for those who have faith in the Lord of glory. Because this is a shameful turning from God's place as provider and as redeemer in favor of man. So here's, think about this. Why would someone give special treatment to the rich person? Feel free to shout it out. What was that? To get something, right? Money, whatever. Because they think they have something to gain. We look to this person and we say, that person has something to offer me. That person has something to offer us. Right? I can benefit. We can benefit from this individual. He has money. We need money. It's a match made in heaven, right? We got a good thing going here. He probably knows other people with money. We need other people with money, right? He's attractive to other guests. If people come in and see him and others like him hanging out here, they'll think, hey, these guys are really something, right? We got it going on. We got the the affluent here in the church. Perhaps others 
will follow, right? And they'll bring their resources. If we keep him around and treat him specially, we can profit from him being here. He can provide more of what we need to be comfortable and secure and everything that we want here in this life. And this is a picture, an illustration of a terrible sinful heart issue, and that is unrighteous partiality. It's showing favor and preference in order to get something out of it. Loving in order to get something. Extending hospitality to those who we think have something to offer us in return. Can we all just have a moment of confession and confess that we have done this in our hearts? Can, we, can you do it with me? Have we done this in our hearts? Have we shown preference to certain people because <laughs> never? <laughs> Far be it from me. A righteous man. Yeah. Nope. Can't think of a time. Instead of trusting God alone to be our provision and our protector and our sustainer, extending hospitality to those we think we can get something from. Meanwhile, not only doing that, but simultaneously regarding the poor person as worthless. The one who does not have desirable assets. He has no resources. He has no money to toss in the offering box. He has no valuable social connections, right? He's not connected with all the movers and shakers in the community. No network of friends in high places who can help us advance our cause in our lives. If you have him over for dinner, you know he's not inviting you over in return because he has no place to go, right? What is there to gain from showing favor to this person? Right? I got nothing to get from this guy. He can go just sit in the back and be quiet. What this boils down to is dividing people up into those whom we deem to be valuable and those who are not. Those who bring something attractive to the table and those who don't. And what does James say? This is evil. It is evil. It's not a little white sin. It's not some little thing that we do and go, oopsie. This is evil. These distinctions are evil, these judgments are evil, and these manipulative, selfish thoughts are evil. He calls it making distinctions among the body. It's basically saying, these people are worthy of honor, and these are not. We have all done it, and I think that we probably do it more often than we think, because this is just the way that humans are. We want to get what we want, and we will do what we need to do to get it. We've all done it. Seeking to please and butter up and love, okay, love, I'm using this term loosely, certain people because it benefits us and dishonoring others because they are lesser than in our estimation. There is nothing to be gained in our eyes by extending favor to them. And so this is a battle and a temptation that all of us fight. And I believe as the church comes under more and more pressure from the world, that these temptations are only going to grow from here, right? We are going to experience more and more and more and more pressure to become like the world, to have the lasers and the fog machines and have the pastor come riding in on a motorcycle, and God only knows what else, you know? If that's what you're after, this ain't the place for you guys because we just can't afford it, okay? Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Even if we had the money, there will be no lasers, I promise you. Fog machine, maybe. Zip line, yes. Coming soon. Baptisms are going to be straight into the tub. Um, it's, just not, it's, just, it's just not what we're after. It's not what we're after. And, and I'll share this with you just as an example but suffice it to say that Pastor Rob and I have, have received offers that were extremely, extremely, extremely uh, appealing from a sustainability, financial, and uh, general ease standpoint. All we would have to do is compromise a few of our doctrines. And so what are we going to do? Are we going to go with the security or are we going to cling to our convictions about what the Word of God says? 
It would be a lot easier for us to just abandon all this stuff about sin and hell and judgment and just preach a message that will bring all the goats in here and tickle their ears and make them feel good. But we can't do that. We cannot do it. We can't show partiality to the world so that we can get what we want. And so this is a battle that we're all fighting on, on some scale. And I say keep on fighting it. Keep on fighting it. Don't give in to this temptation. And I just got to briefly insert here, guys, that I am greatly encouraged by our church as a whole in this particular area. So as your pastor or one of them, I want to just embrace and, and gold star you guys and just, and just bless you. Um, by God's grace, Calvary Bible Church seems to be a place where the destitute can come and be loved. And I don't know, you know, I'm not going to sit here and offer a bunch of reasons why that is, but for whatever reason, praise God. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate that people tell me that they come in and feel welcomed and not like some weirdo outcast because they see that we're all a bunch of goofy goobers and they go, okay, well, you know, I can probably fit in with these people, you know. Nobody here is lofty and unapproachable and, and you know, gives off this air of being something because we're not. We are not. We are peasants and praise God. You know what? Praise God. This is a place where people are loved without the evil expectation of receiving something in return as it ought to be, and I, I pray that we will continue to lean into that, lean hard into that. That is pleasing to God. Freely you have received, therefore freely give, amen? So I'm genuinely proud that that has become somewhat of the culture of this fellowship, and I, I just urge you guys to continue to be a blessing to those who have not, to love the outcast because Christ loved us. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus loved me, so therefore I'm obligated to love you. There's no place for partiality because doing so dishonors the Lord. And I think this is how Paul would say it as he wrote in Ephesians 4.20. He said, that is not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ. If he was like us, showing partiality to the worthy, then who would be saved? No one. Jesus did not look out into the muck and mire of dead, fallen humanity and go, hey, that guy could really help my bank account, or that guy could really improve my social status, or that guy could make a great safety net if I run into financial trouble, or that guy could be a big donor for my church. He looked upon a fallen race with pure compassion. And he had no motivation for selfish gain because we know that he lacks nothing and needs nothing. Yet he came to give himself as a payment in the place of those with nothing to offer but an infinite debt to a holy God. We were as poor and destitute and needy and shaggy and tattered as any creature could possibly be. And those are the people that he came for. He is not a respecter of persons. He is not impressed by our clothes or our vehicles or our bank accounts. He did not come to save the healthy and the righteous. He came to call the sick and the poor and the needy sinner to salvation. He didn't come to get but to give. The Lord of glory came to live and die for the despised of this world. He came to live and die for the broken not to build a social club of society's elite, but to build his church. Church made up of all peoples, of all places, languages, statuses, and ages. Verse 5, read with me if you would. James says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So what is God's heart? God's heart and purpose is the reverse of this sinful partiality toward those who have something to offer. God has, in fact, chosen those who have 
nothing to be rich in faith and to inherit his kingdom, to give it to all who love him, not just the strong and the wealthy, but with a particular heart for the poor. This is how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to read this for you. This is who we are. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you want to boast in something, boast in the fact that God is your father, right? I'm going to totally steal this illustration from another pastor but he was saying, look, don't we all love to talk about the people that we know? You know, I got so-and-so's autograph, or I got to shake so-and-so's hand at something. Who cares? Nobody cares. Oh, you met some guy in a band. So what? He plays the guitar. I know God, right? God is my father. What about you? That's our only boast. I know God. Other than that, we got nothing. Who cares? Everybody has giftings. Everybody's good at something big deal. God's my father, right? You know the creator of the universe? He's my dad. He loves me. That's our boast. Boast in the Lord. God is glorified in his exaltation of the lowly. That's what James has already wrote his readers to boast in. Let the lowly boast in his exaltation. You may be nobody, but if you have Christ, you have all that you need. You're precious in his sight. Who else's opinion matters of you? God loves me. What else do I need? What else do I need? Who can be against me? These are the words of Jesus. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. That is where our eyes are set. Our reward is there. Our reward is there. Take a look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Guys, this is the reality of the situation. In this day, before the dawn of the, of the second century, the rich were oppressive. Is there anything new under the sun? No. Is it not the rich and the powerful that blaspheme the name of our God? Is it not the rich and the powerful who take advantage of the common person for their own gain? Now again, I'm not saying every single one, but is that not generally the trend of this world? They certainly were in James' day. He says in chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Nothing new under the sun. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. It's the same old story over and over and over and over. Ecclesiastes says, don't be surprised when the poor are oppressed. 
because this is the heart of man. This is what man does. Are we determined, church, to rest in God's provision for us instead of trusting in man's wealth? Are we determined to love each other without ulterior motives? Are we determined to love simply because we ourselves have been loved by God? Is that enough? Are we determined to be satisfied in every good and perfect gift that has come down from Him? Or will we befriend the world in order to get ahead? May the desire of our hearts be the kingdom and righteousness of Christ. Amen? Looking ahead to His coming, setting our hope completely there. This is from Hebrews 11. I, we read this on our lunch break uh, this week. Verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Better to be despised for Jesus' sake than to have all the wealth and comfort in the world. As James says in chapter 1, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We brought nothing into this life, and we can take nothing out with us. Only that which was done in faith for Christ is going to stand. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Riches will pass away, but as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. Love never ends. That is the aim of of all of our activities here on earth while we are still alive. Love for God and love for neighbor. Anything that is not done in love is worthless. That's what James is getting at, and that is what Paul made crystal clear for us. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm obnoxious, I'm annoying. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love has to be our motivation. Impartial and not self-seeking. Love like Jesus loves. Philippians 2 in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Now, take a look at verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Man, this is so, so good for us. What do we think that doing well means? When I ask people when they come in, Hey, how you doing? They go, I'm doing well. What do we think doing well means? We've read our Bible for at least 30 minutes every day, right? You got to check that one off. Maybe memorize a new verse. Good deal. Listen to five sermons this week. I'm killing it. I had my devotional time every morning. Didn't miss a single one. I got up at 4 o'clock, and I prayed three times a day, and I went to a Bible study, and I didn't get drunk. I didn't get high. I didn't steal. I didn't fornicate, praise God, and I didn't cuss that much this week. I'm doing well, right? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm living the Christian life. I'm not talking about myself. I'm just giving an example. <laughs> I am, though, in a way. You want to know what doing well actually looks like? It's loving the person next to you. Don't even look at them because it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they look like. Doing well is loving your neighbor. Remember everyone was cracking up at Pastor Rob's joke story the other week about cleaning your room? You guys remember that? If you weren't here... He's talking about how we love to just, oh, I just love how God really told me this thing about how I should do that and the way he said it. And, and it, the, the, the joke was, it was like someone, your, your dad left you a note saying, clean your room while I'm away. And then he gets home and he goes, dad, I just love how you wrote about cleaning my room and the way you worded it, the nuance, the depth, the language, it was beautiful. And he goes, yeah, but you didn't clean your room, right? It's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Well, that's what we look like when we check off all these spiritual boxes and yet fail to apply any of it for the end to which it's all there for, which is love. Being a doer who acts, right? 
Who cares? If you don't have love, it's worthless. We are so easily impressed with people and the stuff that they got. We are impressed by knowledge. We're impressed by giftings. We're impressed by discipline. On and on and on the list goes. You go, wow, that guy knows the word so well. Wow, that guy can really pray. Wow, that guy can sing. Wow, that guy can play guitar. Wow, that guy can whatever. We go, wow, look at that person. They must be so spiritual. I'm telling you guys right now, do not be impressed by any of that stuff. Anybody can be knowledgeable. There are people that know the Bible better than all of us put together who are unsaved. They can literally read it from their brain through memory, and yet they have no understanding of what it says. Anybody can be knowledgeable. Anybody can be gifted. Think of your favorite demonic metal band. Those guys are amazing, extremely talented, right? Do they know God? No. Think of the most disciplined person you know. Whoever you listen to on your uh, self-improvement podcast, right? Your, uh, what is it called? Human, um, oh, there's a whole subculture of it. It's like making optimization, right? Listen to your optimization podcast, your Jockos, your whoever, right? Man, look at that guy. He must be so spiritual. No. Intelligence. No. Who cares? Do they have love? Do they have character that shows that they've actually applied their knowledge and gifts and discipline? Does it have an effect on them? Or are they just impressive in their giftings? John says in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's what? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God does not care how much you know if you don't have love. You demonstrate that you don't really know anything. Does that make sense? Don't be impressed by people's showy giftings. What is in the heart? What is their character like? A little knowledge that works itself out in love is of great value. If you know a little bit and you put it into action, you are miles ahead of the guy who knows everything and does nothing with it because he is now doubly responsible for everything he knows and is not doing. If you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and I am supposed to love my neighbor and you actually do that, you're doing well. If you know every line and precept and you despise the lowly guy next to you, what was the point? You're wasting your time. If you're loving your brothers and sisters because Christ loves you, you are doing well. That is the royal law of God in five words. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. But this last section here, we're going to close up, is interesting. Verses 9 through 11. James says this, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So do you guys see why showing partiality is so foolish and so sinful? James calls it making distinctions. Making distinctions between people who have received God's mercy. The practice of judging amongst God's people who is worthy of love and who isn't is ridiculous in light of what James says here. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it, meaning there is no distinction. If you have broken God's law at any time or in any way, you are condemned. You are guilty. You need forgiveness and you need a Savior. It doesn't matter if you've broken one or a million, there is no distinction. What did Adam do? He made one 
decision. And that one decision plunged the entire world into rebellion against God, brought death into the universe to reign over mankind from the beginning. One decision. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to rebel against what God has said. One sin plunged the world into darkness and death. One choice. And in his likeness, now all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. The playing field is even. All are guilty. Adulterers, murderers, those who show partiality, and everyone in between. Notice the sins that he lumps this in with. Murder and cheating on your spouse. This is not a little white sin. This is a big deal. This is evil. We are all lawbreakers. We are all in need of rescue from God's wrath. And in Christ, we are all forgiven and we are all made perfect. And so there is no distinction Romans 10.12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Colossians 3.11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We don't get to divide the body up according to our standards. God says all are condemned in Adam and all are made perfect in Christ. That's it. To divide up the body along the lines of something so petty as wealth ought not be be for those who have received such abundant mercy. For those who were convicted and awaiting the death sentence and then received mercy, how then can we then turn around and judge others with evil thoughts? Who are you? Who am I but a sinner snatched out of the fire? Are you better than the poor man? Do you have more inherent value than the poor man? Did you need Christ less than the poor man? Were you less dead in your sin than the poor man? Did Jesus sprinkle extra blood on you when he saved you, right? Did he call you with a louder voice than he called the poor man? No. We are all equals in Christ. We were all enemies of God, and now in Christ we are all recipients of the same sacrifice, made new by the same Spirit, awaiting the return of the same Savior. No distinction. And so James says, closing this out, verse 13, or verse 12, sorry, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Having been set free from the law of sin and death, live like it. Live like the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Love like you have been loved. Show compassion like you have been shown compassion. Show mercy like you have been shown mercy. Give to your brother and sister the same thing that has been given to you. That's all it is. We've received from God. We hand it off to our brother. We hand it off to our sister. Live like someone who has been forgiven. Live like someone who is under grace. Live like someone who has escaped condemnation and is now free to love without the fear of judgment. There's a story, a parable in Luke 7. Jesus says a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii And the other owed 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Right? What does Peter say? The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The one who is forgiven much loves much. Have we been forgiven much? Do you guys believe that? Do you understand the state that you have been rescued from. 
you have been forgiven much. If you do not have love, you do not understand how much you've been forgiven. That's the facts. If you don't have love and compassion and mercy in your heart, you do not know from where you have been rescued. If you do not show mercy, you do not understand the mercy that was poured out in Christ. You do not understand the gospel in which mercy triumphs over judgment. That's verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But the one who has received mercy shows mercy, knowing what a great debt has been forgiven. We have been forgiven a great debt. And that is where James wants our attention. On the mercy of Christ and the love of Christ He wants our eyes fixed there where our sins were selflessly paid for by the Lord of glory. If that is where our eyes and our attention and our focus are, at the cross where Christ paid for my sins and at the day of his return, how then can we turn our eyes to the person next to us and go, that person's not worthy of my love, that person's not worthy of honor, that person's not worthy of respect. May it never be. We'll close here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus laid aside riches and became poor so that we might become rich. Now we walk as he walked. We follow his example. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you that you have so graciously reminded us of the love that has been given to us and therefore the love that we owe every person that we come into contact with. Oh man, nothing but your love, your word says. We are debtors to love. We have been loved, and so we must love. We have been shown mercy, and so we must show mercy. We have been shown compassion and grace, and so we must extend compassion and grace. Lord, please help us, God. We fail and stumble in so many ways, and this is one that is so sneaky and deceptive and unseen, God, but you see our hearts. You see the way that we think. You see our selfish ambitions, Father, and yet you've received us and forgiven us. And so, God, I pray from this day forward, Lord, that we would make every effort to resist this temptation, God, to show favoritism for the sake of gain, and that we would remember what Christ has done for us, the needy, the poor, the broken, the outcast, the destitute, that he came to lay his life down for us, having nothing to gain but glory for his name in his humiliation. God, may we be radically changed by that reality that he came to lay his life down for me, for you sitting there in that chair. How then can we despise the poor? How then can we seek to become friends with the world to get what we want? Lord, may we be about your business as we await your return, serving humbly in submission considering others more important than ourselves, God. What a challenge. Help us, Lord. We need you. We cannot do this in our flesh, God. It's only by the power of your Spirit and the knowledge of what Christ has done that this is possible. So we pray, we ask, we plead for your help. And we thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.